This PBS NewsHour podcast is made possible in part by the following. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Washington is bracing for busy days ahead as the deadline for a government shutdown quickly approaches. To discuss that and more, we turn to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Gentlemen, welcome. So nice to see you. Good to see you. Uh, David, Congress has left for the long weekend. I guess they think it's a good time to take a break. But we are awfully close to this government shutdown. How close do you think we really are? Uh, quite close. Well, in in time terms, it's uh, you know not like basically a week. Uh, in probability terms, there's a very high probability the government will shut down, and we'll be where we've been before. Uh, and the core cause is that there are a group of members of Congress who are not interested in practical governance. They're right that our deficits are too big on the far right of the Republican Party, but they have no strategy to get there, and so they're basically a bunch of nihilistic performance artists. <laughs> And uh, that looks great on a business card. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my nickname in high school. So I uh, <laughs> uh, and so uh, Speaker McCarthy has to decide what to do. And the core simple truth should be, well, we don't allow performance artists to have power. And he's giving them a lot of power because he's refusing to or is unable or unwilling to cut a deal with the Democrats and sort of freeze out the people on the right. And in my view, he should take them on right now because his power will wane, and that his fear is he'll lose his job as speaker. But he, I think his, if he wants to keep that speaker job, he'll be weaker in two weeks. He'll be weaker in three weeks when everyone's upset about a government shutdown than he is right now. And so, uh, in my view, he should take them on right now and try to cut some sort of deal, uh, or stick to the deal he, he cut with Joe Biden, actually. I mean, David is describing the idea that, that McCarthy still has some agency in all of this, but it seems like in the last few weeks and days, it, it seems like he's utterly lost control of his own caucus. I mean, that's assuming he had any control to begin with. Let's not forget, and it's now a mantra, it took 15 ballots for him to get the Speaker's gavel to begin with. But I agree with David. The Speaker needs to exert some control. He has a five-seat five seat majority. Get it. Totally understand it. Said, uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi also had a similar majority, and she got a lot done. And why? Because she exercised the power of the office. Speaker McCarthy absolutely should tell this rump faction within his majority to go stuff it. I have governing to do. We have governing to do. We can't allow the government to shut down. And this is the fork in the road that the speaker is going to is facing. Unfortunately, I have no confidence that the speaker will choose will will won't choose holding on to the gavel versus showing real governance, passing a CR, getting these budget bills passed. He's going to he's going to keep that speaker's gavel at all costs, and we're, we'll pay for it. David, you mentioned this idea that the the Republicans feel like they have to now reach out to the Democrats to try to get this done. Do you think the Democrats will do that, and at what price might they want to extract from him? Well, I think the price they should ask for is we already had, did this deal. Like we don't, the Joe Biden and McCarthy did this deal, and so that's our price. Let's just stick to the deal. 
And the problem for McCarthy is there are a lot of people, probably more than just the fringe in his party, who, who really do care about spending. And so they want something with less spending than the deal that Biden cut. Uh, and that, to me, that's probably a political non-starter. And they've got to get serious. If you really want to cut spending, well, let's throw everything on the table. Let's throw tax hikes on the table. Let's throw entitlements on the table. Let's throw defense on the table. But thinking you can make some big spending reduction just with this, what they call non-defense discretionary spending, this is crowd cuckoo land. So they're just not serious. I sympathize with the idea that our deficits are too big, but they're just not serious. Jonathan, do you think the Democrats in offering this potential, that they want to see McCarthy twist in the wind more than they want to see the government shut down? Well, both are happening. I mean, he's <laughs> twisting in the wind right now, and I firmly believe, as I sit here right now, that the government is going to shut down. And it's going to shut down because Speaker McCarthy would be, uh, is going to be unwilling to work with Democrats. There is an easy solution to this. Work with Democrats, come up with a bill, and then have that bill pass out of the House by huge numbers, thereby sending a signal to the Senate, but also to the rest of the country, that you know how to do the job you are entrusted with. Um, I want to turn to Ukraine. We saw President Zelensky here again pleading with America's leaders to, to come forward with more aid. And he's arguing, basically, that this war hinges on our morale, which he says they have in plenty of supply, but Western aid. And we saw that he really got a frosty uh, reaction from Republicans. McCarthy wouldn't even have his picture taken with him. Is this skepticism within the GOP really growing? Tremendously, yeah. I mean, if you had told me a year ago that the Ukrainians would be, like, totally still in it and they're the ones who are actually suffering, and that Western Europe would be strongly supportive, no wavering there, and that the wavering would be in the U.S. and in the Republican Party... I probably wouldn't believe that, but that's exactly where it is. There's always been a rump of people in the party who just don't want military, don't want support. They don't think Ukraine's a strategic country. They have their reasons. Uh, that number is maybe doubling, maybe going up by 50%. Nobody knows exactly, but it's significantly eroding. Uh, and so that's happening. And at the same time, on the Democratic side, there's a big and I think important debate. Should we admit Ukraine into NATO? And the hope is that if we admit them into Ukraine, Ukraine into NATO, Putin will not want to attack a NATO country, and that will prevent a forever war. And so the two parties are going in very different directions, where the re Republicans are just walking away, and the, some Democrats are saying, no, we need to get more involved in Ukraine politically and give them this alliance so they can stand up to Putin. How do you see that unfolding? Um, well, one, I want to go back to the idea that the Speaker of the House would not even allow himself to be photographed with a wartime president. And, and what I find so... What do you attribute that to? Um, fear of, of the far right in his caucus that are clamoring for defunding Ukraine, along with a lot of other things that they want to do. That's what I think that's about. It all goes back to, it goes back to the shutdown. But the other thing that, why I find that move so galling, as speaker, he is number three in line to the presidency, which automatically makes him a statesman. And so you have a wartime president coming to this country begging for our, for our help and our continued support, and he won't even show him that. I mean, thankfully, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Majority Leader Schumer and the president showed him um, uh, America's resolve. But I, I'm with David. I am astounded. I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party was about standing with allies, um, bolstering the Western alliance, and particularly a country where 
the battle is between democracy and, and autocracy, and if they lose, then the whole enterprise, the whole exper experiment that is democracy would be on its last leg. I mean, do you see it that, that way as well? Do you think that, as Jonathan is describing, that the, the graybeard, so to speak, in the Republican Party will prevail and keep America funding? I think so. But if you're Vladimir Putin, you're looking at this and thinking, I'm going to keep fighting because they're weakening over there. And then I'm thinking, well, I'm definitely going to keep fighting till November of 2024 because his best hope of victory is not anything that happens on the battlefield in Ukraine. It's Donald Trump getting elected, uh, in which case uh, he's, he's going to do very well in this war. And we should say in both these issues tonight, the budget deal and in Ukraine, Donald Trump is the four-time indicted elephant in the room. Mm. And he's been saying, don't cut a deal. And he's been saying, we got to get out of Ukraine. And the rest of the Republicans are looking at him. Um, David, before we go, I want to ask you about this uh, uh, tweet that you put out this week where, and we can put this up on screen, um, you posted this tweet that showed uh, dinner that you were having at an airport and that it cost $78. And you wrote, this is why the American people think the economy is terrible. You got roughed up a little bit online about this, but I'm just curious more about what, what, what you were trying to convey with that. Yeah, well, first it was, it started out hatched in my mind as a, as a joke, because if you looked at what I was eating, it was bourbon and a very fattening hamburger right. and fries. So it's Delicious like a, dinner. I, I can't afford to make bad lifestyle choices. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the problem with the tweet, which I wrote so stupidly, was that it made it seem like I was oblivious to something that is blindingly obvious, that an upper middle class journalist having a bourbon at an airport is a lot different than a family living paycheck to paycheck. And when I'm getting sticker shock, it's like, it's like an inconvenience when they're getting sticker shop, it's a disaster. And so I was insensitive, I screwed up, I should not have written that tweet, I should, probably should not write any tweets, but... Um, I, That's I advice we should all be yeah, taking. But I, I made a mistake, and I, I, it was stupid. But the, the one point that is, maybe can be drawn, if anything can be drawn, was uh, we, you can experience inflation as a, a chart with downward slope inflation's coming down, but the way we, normal, we experience relaxation day to day is as that moment of sticker shock. You're in the grocery store, you're at the gas station, and suddenly costs something way more than you anticipated. And for people who are, who are less fortunate than I am, uh, that is a disaster. And so we have to understand why we say inflation's coming down, but for people living and seeing those sticker shock moments, it doesn't feel that way. David Brooks, Jonathan Capehart, so nice to see you both. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you.